0: welcome to the extra environmentalist
1: your opposable thumb means nothing this is what we want to be we don't want to be americans or germans or english we want to be
2: extra environmentalists
1: always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger the outsider the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: The idea of subjugation is as old as civilization. Ruling classes have oppressed other humans into servitude to meet their wants since humans first started wielding weapons. We tend to think of slavery as an institution from the past, one that we have matured out of as a species. But as we find out in today's interview with Canadian journalist Andrew Nikifork, we've simply exchanged personal slavery for fossil fuels. With as many as 150 energy slaves running around the average U.S. household, we live a lifestyle radically better than even kings and queens of old and rely on this complex system of support for most everyday chores. So, Justin, that must have been a real treat sitting down with Andrew. Tell us a little bit about it.
1: Andrew was here in Vancouver because he lives in Calgary and every so often comes into Vancouver to speak about the kind of work that he's doing on tracking all the fossil fuel companies in Alberta, the tar sands development. And I hear that in North America, one of the busiest airline routes is between Houston and Calgary, because there's so much oil money flowing in to the province of Alberta to extract all of that tar sands oil. And so Andrew is there in Alberta documenting and following everything that's going on with the tar sands development and he's been following it for many years and so when he was here in Vancouver I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him about his new book Energy Slaves. And then in the second half of our episode today we speak with Chris Nelder who returns to our show after he was last on extra environmentalist episode number 47 back in August of 2012 and we catch up with Chris on developments in energy transition since then the german energy transition some of the narratives surrounding energy transition like the idea of fossil fuel divestment the carbon bubble and nuclear power as the way to stop climate change and meet our energy needs and we do that after our conversation with andrew
0: this is episode number 76 i'm seth
1: i'm justin and this is the extra environmentalist
2: First of all, you have to think about slavery in terms of it being one of the world's first energy institutions. We used shackled human muscle to get work done to provide comforts for rich people. And the basis of that was that slaves were cheap. When we compare that system to fossil fuels, it works along similar lines in the sense, Okay, so what's the cheap part? The cheap part? our fossil fuels, or have been for the last 100 years. And what are we feeding our fossil fuels to? Well, we're feeding them to energy slaves. Oh, and what are these energy slaves? Well, these are machines, combustion engines, uh, steam engines that are doing work for us, right? So whether we're talking about cars or whether we're talking about refrigerators or ovens or lawnmowers or ATVs or motorcycles and the list goes on and on and on. But we're talking about tens of billions of energy slaves doing work for us because we have these cheap energy sources. So let's go back to slavery. We know it was an incredibly abusive institution where we were torturing and working to death human beings to provide comforts for us. Today, we are feeding fossil fuels to billions of energy slaves to basically master the planet. And whereas slavery was all about the abuse of humans and communities, energy slaves today are being used to abuse ecosystems oceans lakes the atmosphere human communities as well so that's where the comparison lies so the big fundamental question for us is as a species is well how do we use cheap energy and the answer over history has been that we use energy badly (laughs) and we we get obsessed with power and we lord over this power and The question then is, how many energy slaves do we actually need, and what should we use them for, and what energies should be fueling them?
1: In talking about the energy slaves, what really are the energy slaves being used for in today's society? And can you put that in context, like what kind of scale are we talking about? How many energy slaves does, say, like a typical Canadian or US citizen command?
2: We use energy slaves the same way, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Mayans, used human slaves. So, you know, in ancient Rome, what did they use slaves for? They used them to grow crops. So we have energy slaves like tractors, we have fertilizers, we have all kinds of mechanical cedars and so on that we use to get agricultural work done. The Romans used slaves to provide entertainment, so they had hunchbacks and dwarfs that would provide entertainment. We have digital slaves that provide us with entertainment. So we have our... Laptop computers, our iPhones, our televisions, our iPhones, all this sort of digital slaves providing all kinds of entertainment for us, right? In Roman times, slaves would carry you places and transport you places down the street. So today, we use fossil fuels to feed combustion engines, and the car has become our energy transportation slave of choice to, to move us around. So I mean, we're really using energy slaves for the same thing that we actually use slaves for. Lastly, I mean, the Romans had a name of a slave, a particular slave whose sole function, um, he was called a nomenclator, but whose sole function was to remember the names of important people you might encounter on the street as you walk down the streets of Rome with your master. So like a Blackberry. Just like a Blackberry, yeah. It's a, you know, and, and so people forget we we've had two industrial revolutions. The first one with the steam engine and the combustion engine was all about the mechanization of human muscle, right? The second industrial revolution was all about the mechanization of mental activities with digital equipment, which we think are clean because oh, it's run on electricity, isn't this great, I'm not using that much energy. We forget that the amount of embedded energy in an iPhone or in a laptop is enormous. And in fact, can be sometimes three times more energy is embedded in that gadget than that gadget will ever consume in its lifetime. And the energy embedded in that gadget is coming largely from fossil fuels.
1: So you mentioned Roman society. Like, how many slaves were running through Roman society at any one time? When we think about energy depletion and peak oil issues, the issue is not that we don't have a lot of oil, it's that we are running out of the rate at which the oil is flowing through society. That rate is dropping. So what kind of rate or energy metabolism in slaves was Roman society experiencing?
2: Well, Roman society ran at one point when slavery was providing enormous amounts of cheap energy to keep Rome going and it was the job of the Roman army to procure this energy source. So you'd send the army off to Gaul or to send it off to England to North Africa to bring back 70,000 slaves, put them on the market. So at a certain point in Roman society about half of the people let's say living in Rome itself were slaves so, the ratio in in many cases of Romans to slaves, a typical roman well to do Roman family might have up to four or five slaves. The very rich had uh, you know anywhere between twenty to a hundred or hundreds of slaves so there there was a lot of cheap energy to go around in ancient Rome, and it was the foundation of Rome. All right, so today, how many energy slaves do we have? Well, we have phenomenally more energy slaves at our disposal than the richest Romans, the richest Egyptians, the richest Babylonians. By the 1940s alone, Buckminster Fuller calculated that the average American had at their disposal 24-7, 39 energy slaves, largely in the form of combustion engines, almost exclusively being fueled by fossil fuels, but also many by electricity that accounted for the exceptional nature of of American life. All right, Americans had access to to workers at an incredible level, these these energy slaves. Today, the average North American who consumes on average 24 barrels of oil a year has access to nearly 100 slaves purely fueled by oil working for them 24-7. If we start adding are digital slaves, powered by electricity or coal or nuclear power. I mean, we're up to 150 slaves per person. That's an extraordinary number of energy slaves. And just like the Romans, just like southern plantation owners, when you crowd your household with that much comfort and ease provided by slaves, you are changing all of your social relationships. You are changing the nature of your family, the nature of your community, the nature of life in general, and you then have a number of powerful moral and philosophical issues you have to ask yourself, which is fundamentally, how many slaves do I need to help get work done? And in North America, the answer is, (laughs) not nearly as many slaves as we now squander, when we've got people in North America who will drive a Hummer or an SUV with incredible horsepower to the store to buy a bag of candy and to a store that they could walk to. So, I mean, again, you're, you're seeing this, this incredible squandering of, of energy and resources.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there were so many slaves in Roman society. Why didn't they just organize and rebel against their masters?
2: Well, they did. Not very often, and there are some spectacular examples. There was Spartacus and the Spartacus Rebellion, which the Romans responded to the same way we might respond to an oil price shock. I mean, this challenged the very foundation of Roman civilization for all of its cheap energy to suddenly become a militant force against the civilization itself. The Roman response was formidable and they crucified people who took part in these rebellions which is why there weren't very many of them you know the romans understood that slavery was such an important source of cheap energy to them that any thoughts about abolition were not part of public discussion
1: it would have been taboo to even begin discussing something like
2: that. It would have been taboo to bring up the subject. I mean, you you don't find very many abolitionists in ancient Rome or ancient Greece. And it was understood that slaves were an essential part of the economy, that they were cheap energy. They even called them speaking tools.
1: Rome had people who were developing technologies, they had a steam engine. Why didn't they put these to use and use the same kind of mechanical energy slaves that we do now?
2: For the same reason that the Saudis are not a very innovative people, or for the same reasons that Canadians don't invest very much in innovation, is that when you have access to cheap energy in the form of slaves, it really discourages a lot of smart thinking. Cheap energy always makes you dumb. Expensive energy makes you innovative, sharp, puts you on the edge because stuff is not easy to do. But when you have access to cheap energy, everything gets dumbed down. And you can see this in places like the Middle East, which invest very little in science, very little in innovation, particularly and I'm talking about the petrostates of the modern Middle East, And also, when you look at other petro-states, whether it be uh, Canada, which is a mining republic, we are not known to be an innovative people either.
1: And so now we face so many problems because of the size of oil companies and big oil companies. Was, Was there like a military slave complex, like how we have a military oil complex now?
2: That's a great term. I haven't thought of it that way, but exactly. There was a military slave complex... Definitely operating in Rome and also definitely operating at the beginning of the British Empire when you had the British government very active in the slave trade, providing military support to the slave trade as slave traders who operated much like oil companies, you know, would would extract human beings from Africa, transport them under the most horrendous conditions possible to the new world to serve as speaking tools in mining and agricultural operations. So yes, there was a slavery industrial complex, just as today there is very much a military industrial complex that has developed around the fossil fuels because they originally were such a cheap form of energy.
1: Now we're starting to see so many economic problems in the world because of issues of peak oil and energy depletion. And so we've been talking about Rome for the last few minutes. Was there really a point when Rome hit peak slave, like when they really hit this decline and started to go in the opposite direction of their ascent? And then what was that really like in Roman society when that happened?
2: Well, when you talk about (laughs) peak slavery, I guess it, it really was a case of diminishing returns. So as it became more expensive and more difficult for the Roman army to go out and capture slaves and send them home. So in other words, they had to engage in incredibly brutal military campaigns in Germany, in Scotland, with the result that they were actually bringing back fewer slaves, expending more money in men to do so. That was when you reached peak slavery in Rome, and when the whole system that underpinned it began to fall apart. And it's when... Roman currency started to become debased, and the state responded to the crisis by investing more and more in an army it could no longer support because there wasn't the cheap energy source to generate the income that the empire had to begin with. So it's very much a tale of diminishing returns. It's similar to what we are now seeing now. So what did we do with cheap energy or cheap oil? Well, we spent it freely, we went on a joyride, but we created enormous amount of complexity. We concentrated almost everything. So we've got big government, we've got big corporations, we've concentrated people into big mega cities. We've done all sorts of things that you can only do with cheap energy. And now this cheap energy source is going. Hydrocarbons are becoming more difficult than extreme bitumen, deep-sea oil, shale gas. These are all high capital, high energy, high carbon, high environmental impact resources that deliver diminishing returns. We were spending more energy and we're getting less back. So we're finding ourselves almost in the same trap that ancient Rome found. And not only that, we don't want to acknowledge it. We don't even want to acknowledge the fact that we are getting diminishing returns. And as a consequence, we are seeing financial contraction in Europe, the United States, and Japan, all parts of the world that were really the first oil adapters and pioneers, the United States in particular.
1: Does civilization require slaves? Is it something that we don't have a model of civilization that doesn't require some form of slavery, whether it's human slavery or mechanical slavery? I mean, is there really an alternative to civilization as we know it now that doesn't require some form of of exploitation in a
2: way? What every civilization needs is a source of energy that generates a surplus That allows that society to invest time and energy and money in education, in, in arts, in culture, all the things we associate with civilization. Now, does that mean then we have to have slavery? No, some civilizations have done quite well without slavery. But we do need energy sources that generate some kind of surplus in order to create what we call civilization.
1: Let's step back from the whole idea of energy slavery for a minute and from talking about Roman civilization. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into studying energy and oil and even writing a book like Energy Slaves. How did you get started in this area?
2: Well, I've been a a reporter in Alberta for more than 25 years. I've been writing about the oil and gas industry most of that time. And after I saw the tar sands boom, fundamentally changed the character of my province, whether it was the price of housing going sky high, whether it was the number of crack addicts on the street of Calgary, whether it was the quirky and unpredictable nature of the government and how it was responding and spending these oil dollars. All of that really got me thinking more and more about what are fundamentally really moral and philosophical questions. About energy and how we spend it. And that led me, quite to my own surprise, to this observation that a lot of our attitudes about cheap energy and how we spend it come directly from our experience with slavery as an energy institution.
1: A lot of our podcast audience is in the United States and also around the world. So there's a lot of people who aren't familiar with the Canadian energy context. Can you kind of describe the tar sands, what's going on in Alberta and the whole landscape of oil and energy in Canada?
2: Canada is on its way to becoming a petrostate, state. And a petrostate state is a place that is essentially a plantation economy for the production of hydrocarbons. And we have now, for the last 10 years, have become a major oil exporter to the United States. About 20% of the oil that the United States imports, and it imports 40% of its supply, is now coming from Canada. So half of its imported oil is coming from this country. And that development has changed our economy, changed the character of the Canadian experience as these revenue flows from oil have created both a federal government that is very petroleum friendly, a petrolized machine, if you like. I mean, everything in Canada now seems to be about pipelines or, or bitumen production of one kind or another and easing, reducing, diminishing environmental laws and regulations, whining and dining with pipeline lobbyists and paying virtually no attention to climate change. So the, the rapid development of this one resource, and we've gone from 600,000 barrels of oil to nearly 2 million barrels of oil a day in the last 15 years. Of production. Of production. And we want to ramp it up to 5 million <laughs> barrels a day by 2035. That has profoundly changed the character of the country.
1: So have we really progressed morally as a species? You know, I was, I was looking at energy slaves and thinking about all the horrific incidents of slavery throughout human history and the horrific slave trade that brought so many people to North America and the islands and, you know, ripped them up from their homes. And then just the amazing shift that really happened in culture that said that, you know, this really is not okay. This is not something that we should do to people. And we're going to change that with their laws and with rights. But now we've actually gone and exported so many exploitative practices to our planet and to other countries around the world, really, can you put that in context on our moral progression? Well,
2: (laughs) it's a big, it's a big question. It's a big question. And let let's start. Okay. The abolition movement, the movement against slavery, which is probably one of the world's most profound and successful social protest movements that started in the 1780s started with essentially 12 people in a small room in London, England, a religious-based movement that felt that the shackling of human muscle was wrong. And they were spiritually opposed to this practice. This movement arose at the same time we were using coal to power steam engines to get more work done. So fossil fuels in a very perverse kind of way, made it possible over time for governments and industry to support the anti-slavery movement because here we have another option. We can use steam engines, we can, we can get work done this way. But this is still a profoundly important movement that is still with us and it raised questions that we don't want to apply to cheap fossil fuels and our use of cheap fossil fuels with energy slaves. Now the problem is not the abuse of people, although we have certainly used our machines to abuse people. I mean, we have people today who are slaves to machines or whether they're working in Nike plants in China or whether they're working with machines elsewhere in the world. I mean, so we have different forms of slavery still going on. We have people in different states of servitude And we have kind of replaced some of the worst excesses and abuses of human slavery with this kind of thoughtless addiction to energy slaves. We've got such an extraordinary proliferation of energy slaves, let's say in cars or in transportation slaves alone, that has profoundly altered our cities. And we're designing cities for energy slaves, not for people. We have a problem with the emissions from the combustion of all of our energy slaves, which is another way to look at climate change. We have so many slaves doing so much work, providing so many comforts for us, that we've become fat and lazy and as negligent as plantation owners in 19th century U.S. South or plantation owners in the Caribbean. So the big moral issue we don't want to address, which the abolition movement tried to address square on is how many slaves do you need? And the answer for the abolitionists was, you know, a free man must work on his own, right? And, and work with the energy afforded by his family or by his community. And we don't want to go there yet. And we don't want to ask those questions about, well, how many are we entitled to? What should they look like? And we certainly don't want to address the issue of equity. Why is it that North Americans can have billions of energy slaves at their command? The average North American can consume 50 barrels of oil or energy equivalent a year. Why is it okay, and somebody in India is only spending one or two barrels of oil or energy equivalent? Or somebody in Africa is spending half a barrel? Those are big moral issues about equity. And we seem content to avoid those questions as well, as well as the fundamental one: what you know, what happens to you as a human being when you deploy so many energy slaves that you change the character of your family, you change the character of your community, you change you know, ecosystems in your neighborhood because you are behaving like a Greek god and damming rivers and cutting down forests and depleting fisheries and depleting oceans and changing the very energy balance in the atmosphere itself by overheating it with the emissions from our energy slaves. I mean those those are the fundamental issues, moral issues of our time that we have trouble even putting in moral terms. The abolitionists could do that and that is perhaps why we need almost the equivalent of a new abolition movement that begins to ask, how should we be using fossil fuels? What should we be feeding them to? And I think everyone would agree, yeah, we need some energy slaves to do some work for us, right? Some heavy lifting, but what's the right scale? What's the right balance? And how do we become human beings again rather than just members of this incredibly complex state of, of mechanization and industrialization where none of us are truly independent anymore and where we are almost all of us reliant or in a state of servitude to the consumption of fossil fuels.
1: So if we took a household today in a northern country, a developed country, and we replace that with human muscle, how many people does it take to run something like that? You had one example of an experiment where bikers were were running a house
2: yeah, there was, it was. I think it was called the Human Power Experiment, and it was a great experiment. It was done in England just a couple of years ago. And so they took uh, an average uh, family that was on the grid and whose house was energized largely by coal-fired plant. And um, And what they did was they disconnected the house without telling the people in it that they had done this, and they then substituted the coal-fired power with... Human energy generated by more than 100 cyclists. And so, in a garage next door to their home, they had these folks volunteering for a day, pedaling away like mad. It took like 12 cyclists to run the toaster to make one piece of toasted bread, for example. And at the end of the day, when the cyclists were exhausted, They had consumed more calories than they had produced, and the family was simply astounded at their rate of energy consumption and what it took in human effort to replace what had been provided by fossil fuels. And it was an extraordinary lesson. It really said a lot about how much we take energy for granted, but... That places us again into an almost Roman or Egyptian context. I mean, wealthy Romans did not think much about the creature comforts that their slaves provided them.
1: Now there's an increasing backlash against companies that are starting to frack the land and build pipelines and people are really understanding the direct environmental consequences of this on not only the local level, but also the global level with greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. People are understanding the consequences of building more oil infrastructure and continuing this whole edifice that's been built around energy consumption. But do you think that most people are really aware of the economic consequences that this is going to have over the long term? I mean, we're really talking about a grand, not just energy transition, but whole socioeconomic transition as well.
2: No, I don't think people appreciate it at all. I don't think people truly understand what kind of energy transition we are in. And and one of the fundamental problems here is that cheap energy has dumbed us down. Cheap energy in the form of fossil fuels being fed to energy slaves has provided so many comforts and so much ease and so much stuff that we now take it all for granted. Cheap energy has changed our economic thinking, which used to be about real things and it used to be about peasants and crops and animals and fertilizer and sun and and real stuff and turned it into this kind of Disneyland about markets and capital and overproduction and cheap things and that somehow doesn't even incorporate energy spending in its models. And so it changed the development of cities, it changed agriculture from a largely solar-powered and human-powered enterprise into something that is entirely dependent on fossil fuels in the form of machinery, fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides. It fundamentally changed our politics. We have, you know, you've won the lottery if you're a petrostate. You're a loser if you don't have hydrocarbons. And it changed our financial system in the sense that All of the materialism, all the cheap stuff, all of the things that we associate so-called with prosperity and success are fundamentally the product of exploiting cheap flows of energy quickly. And here's the big change. I mean, this stuff is no longer cheap. We see that in the enormous energy sprawl taking place on the landscape. So when you look at the impact of hydraulic fracking on farming communities and how it fragments the landscape, its impact on groundwater, its impact on greenhouse gas emissions, when you look at bitumen production in northern Alberta where you literally have to dig up a forest where it takes two tons of sand to make one barrel of bitumen and it then takes 1.2 barrels of bitumen to make one barrel of oil. I mean, the message is, is that... This is all getting very expensive, and the returns are less and less. There's less surplus for us to play with as a civilization. And as a consequence, what we are seeing everywhere is a fundamental financial contraction. So Europe is experiencing a financial crisis. The United States can't seem to dig itself out of the 2008 recession. Japan is completely in the doldrums. And so the first face of the energy transition underway is not solar panels, it's not windmills, it's, it's not some kind of miraculous green technology. What it is, is a fundamental contraction of the very system that we built with cheap energy as it now discovers that this source is no longer cheap and comes with enormous social and environmental
3: costs. central to our way of life and the driving force for many of the 20th century's greatest advances. Travel, communication, labor
2: saving in the home. Thanks to massive improvements in energy supply over the last hundred years, these and other breakthroughs are reality, not dreams. With energy use expected to double by 2050, what transformations lie ahead? People hold beliefs and make choices that can lead down different
3: paths. Slipping away, the surplus oil production capacity could totally disappear in the next two years. That's according to a new report put together by the US Joint
1: Forces Command. So what does it all mean? And how will this impact other issues? In this report that we're referring to, military leaders specifically say this could exacerbate other unresolved tensions Radio host Alex Jones is in Austin, Texas to weigh in on it
4: all. This is a subject that I've researched in great depth. We also see hype coming out of governments in the West claiming that we have peak oil and that there's not enough oil in the ground. But I live in Texas. I mean, you can drill almost anywhere and find oil and natural gas. And they're finding giant reserves in the Gulf of Mexico. Russia has massive reserves, the North Sea. Uh, I mean, the world is awash
5: in petroleum. All right, what I'm gonna do today is debunk peak oil theory put forth by the liberal establishment and the geo-socialists. You got your Texas tea, you got your original Pennsylvania crude, you got your Alaska North Slope in the pipeline, you got that shale sitting out there in the Rocky Mountain area, Bakersfield, California, the Gulf, you know how it goes. You got your communists up here in Canada, and they're sitting on some shale. That's coming to the forefront. That's about a thousand years worth up there. Anyhow, the point is, according to so called peak oil theory, the United States peak production happened in the 70s, and we're on the downslope now, and that's, they say, why we went to the Arabs with the embargo and all that. But the truth is, The truth is, around that same time, a socialist movement infiltrated the U.S. government and made the claim that all this wilderness and this barren wasteland was worth a damn. And so we should preserve it, and uh, the fact is that there's at least five times as much oil as we've extracted so far just sitting under the ground all over the damn place. We can't touch it because these communists say we're ruining the environment. Well, I say po-po on that. I say read the Bible. The Bible says... The Bible says... The Bible says... Well, not in so many words, but the Bible says when Jesus... When he comes back, you won't expect that we use all these sources... We haven't even touched this shale yet, and they're just kicking the gear on these tar sands. He wants us to use all this oil going into Jesus like that. America is facing some tough challenges right now. Two of the most important are energy security and economic growth. North America actually has one of the largest oil reserves in the world. A large part of that is oil sands. This
6: resource has the ability to create hundreds of thousands of jobs. At our CURL project in Canada, we'll be able to produce these oil sands with the same emissions as many other oils,
5: and that's a huge breakthrough. That's good for our country's energy security and our economy.
3: What choices do you face around energy demand and supply, contributing to social and economic development and safeguarding the future of the planet.
0: listening to episode number 76 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today, we're talking with Andrew Nikofork about his book, Energy Sleeps.
1: There's a lot of people in society who even deny that we are undergoing an energy transition and they say, you know, there's a tremendous amount of oil that's still available underground and we see major energy agencies releasing reports saying there's so much oil that's still left to be extracted and we are developing technology all the time with getting access to that. How do you go about talking to just regular people about the magnitude of this energy transition and how it's going to change society?
2: Well, you've got to talk about the surplus. I mean, it's the surplus of energy that keeps the world running. So the big fundamental change here is that we're not gonna run out of oil. There's lots of oil around, but hey guys, it's not the same stuff that we started out with. We started out with cheap stuff, light oil, high quality, and now we have picked all of the best fruit on the tree And we have to climb higher and higher through more and more brambles to get these resources. So the quality of the resource has changed, and so has the amount of energy it delivers back. hundred years ago, one barrel of oil could net you 100 more. All right? That's an amazing return. That's like taking $1 and making $100 with that dollar. As it gets harder to extract and produce these difficult hydrocarbons and more costly, the returns are are going down. So now today it takes about one barrel of oil globally to find 30 more. In the United States, it takes one barrel of oil to find another 10. In the tar sands, it takes about one barrel of oil or oil equivalent to produce five from the mining projects. From the steam plants, where you are using natural gas to boil water, to make steam, to to produce six barrels of steam, to produce one barrel of bitumen, your energy returns are on par with that with biofuels. So you're almost expending as much energy as you are getting back. You're getting minimal returns. What does civilization need? The civilization we constructed with cheap oil when it was cheap said, okay, well, you know, you have great surplus returns we will have money for schools and hospitals and megacities and everything else as long as we get returns of one on 12. Well, that tells us right away that stuff like, like the tar sands is not going to give us the returns to keep everything going that we have currently constructed. So we're kind of in this what there's a marvelous anthropologist by the name of Joseph Tainter. He's from Utah. And he talks about the energy complexity spiral. So what did we use cheap energy for? We use it to make all kinds of complexity. How did we solve the problems created by that complexity? We spent more cheap energy. How do we keep this spiral going when the energy inputs become more and more expensive? And that's the point we've reached now.
1: As this transition moves forward, what does this energy transition look like for a nation like Canada or for the developed world as it has to deal with these increasing costs of complexity and maintaining the status quo and what is thought of as business as usual? How does this whole transition play out and what can people start doing to embrace the transition and start making change in their own lives and in their communities?
2: Well... I mean, if this analysis is right, what we will begin to see is this enormous energy sprawl. So more and more money will be spent chasing after energy sources offering fewer and fewer returns. And as a consequence of rising energy costs, we will see rising food costs as well. So I think the average person has seen both of those things happen and is beginning to ask some questions about Can we afford business as usual? So projects like the tar sands, projects like hydraulic fracking and shale gas, to me these are all signs of desperation where we are using an incredible amount of brute force to produce resources of of minimal quality. So how do we respond to this? I mean, governments don't really want to begin talking about some of the implications here. I don't think we have any real idea how political institutions, big corporations, big government are going to react as our world gets smaller. So what can ordinary people do? There's lots, I mean, there's the transition movement itself, which, I mean, I knew nothing about, but I went to a meeting in Winnipeg, have a son there, I was invited to attend uh, one of their events and so here we go into Winnipeg. There's more than 60 people there one night and about half of the people in attendance are small businessmen and the subject all all night long is basically, well, okay, we know we've got some pretty serious challenges coming down the pipe. Do we throw up our hands in despair? No. Let's invest our energies in a positive way in our own communities to make our communities, I guess the, the favorite word at the moment, is more resilient. All right, so what do we do to make our communities tough and smarter and more flexible and adaptive? And They're planting gardens, they're planting fruit trees, they're composting, they're forming co-ops so that the old bakery that used to be down the street that has now been wiped out by Walmart and other big box stores is restored to the community. They're trying to get a green grocer going again. They're trying to figure out cooperative financial arrangements to fund some of these changes. But it's really all about people investing human energy in the communities in which they live to do really healthy, positive work. That's where I think a lot of of energy has to go, at a personal level and a family level and a community level. I mean, you can beat your head against the wall trying to convince government to prepare and plan, and governments aren't very good at preparing or planning anyway, but families are, and that's what families are all about. And that's also what communities are all about, and the communities are there to support families. And and that's where we need to, to take our human energies and to revitalize both those most ancient of institutions that are full of renewable energy, right? Mm -hmm. And really, and that it comes down to human love in many cases.
1: And so we mentioned how business as usual is losing its viability, is science as usual, the institution of science also facing similar challenges.
2: Well, if this whole analysis is correct, then I think we've probably peaked in a number of areas. So if you're, Cheap energy sources are getting more difficult to find. All the best stuff has been plundered and picked and consumed. And then we'll find a whole bunch of things peaking at the same time. So democracy, which is very much a product of enormous flows of cheap energy through all kinds of energy slaves, is stumbling everywhere. We find... That science, we're still running on essentially three or four machines that were developed in the 1880s. We're finding that patents are declining, innovation is declining, scientific research is declining. That there are limits to how many so-called technologies, all dependent on cheap fuels, that you can use to get yourself out of a mess. Science is something else that has been dramatically changed by flows of cheap energy. And in particular, we've kind of created this big science. So the science that is highly dependent on huge amounts of corporate support, government support, and is no longer kind of a community-based enterprise. So we see the same sort of concentration of power in science that we have seen in every other aspect of life where we're spending cheap energy. So whether it's megacities or or one thing or huge corporate concentration, even the scaling up of government, we've seen the same sort of phenomenon in science. But as energy flows become more expensive, I think we've already kind of reached a point of crisis in the scientific community that, again, where we are experiencing diminishing returns where science is quite often becoming incredibly esoteric and removed from ordinary life, where it takes teams and teams of scientists now to make small and elemental progress, when in fact, you know, just one person 100 years ago could have changed our thinking about everything. So, has science peaked? I would make the argument it probably has and that it has also been used and abused as a mechanism for, for concentrating more power, for taking cheap energy, putting it through lots of machines again, and allowing companies as varied as Monsanto to other huge pharmaceutical or pesticide related companies. It is now in the servitude of these companies.
1: And so we've been talking about these invisible energy slaves that everybody has. Do we have invisible energy voters in our governments as well?
2: You know, some people would argue that we have this invisible electorate out there that's tens of billions of energy slaves in one form or another that has greatly altered the environment, industrialized, fragmented, mechanized it, that has enormously change voting patterns and behaviors where you know so much of democratic life seems to be boils down to arguments about how fast our energy slaves can speed through a city and where they're going to park yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean it's uh, you know when you kind of take the martian view of things and you sort of step back for a moment and and look at what we're using this energy for We're not using energy to become more creative. We're not using energy to become more spiritual. We're not using energy to become wiser. We're just using energy to spend energy.
1: Mm -hmm. All right, so one last question, then we'll wrap up. What do you think the United States would have been like had it never learned to exploit oil? Like, what do you think the idea of work would have been like, you know, feel free to speculate on this. What really has it done to the culture?
2: Oil really changed the United States. I mean, the United States was the world's first oil pioneer. And it encountered the resource just before the beginning of the Civil War when kerosene became a very important form of illumination. And then it took off as soon as we started using gasoline to power combustion engines. And that changed the entire American experience, the way coal and steam engines changed the whole British experience. And it changed it a number of ways. Number one, in the early 1800s, the average American male was self-employed, largely working on farms. They had a code of self-reliance, of community-mindedness, and there was this agrarian ideal that was fundamental to the American character. And everyone from Thomas Jefferson to Benjamin Franklin talked about this American trait, this kind of self-reliance combined with community-mindedness that made Americans distinct and made them value equality in their communities. Along comes oil that mechanizes and industrializes this landscape. It takes all these self-employed men and the very notion of masculinity tied to all of that and turns it upside down and makes men into managers and servants of machines. So within quick order, the number of self-employed in the United States completely changes, and most American males become part of a workforce working with machines, quite often in in states of, of servitude. And so that that was one fundamental change and energy flows just don't change your politics and your economy and and your character, but they also change gender roles, too. So that was one of the first changes you see in America. Then you see the economic changes, the concentration of power, the rise of huge corporations. You find the rise of big government in response to control all the flows of energy going on, as well as to manage the proliferation of energy slaves in American society. You find Americans becoming fat and lazy and extremely dependent and becoming a lesser people in the sense that they don't have the same kind of philosophical wisdom, the same kind of innovative drive and ingenuity they had when they were low-energy people that had to operate on their wits but with an abundance of natural resources, to a people who have so much cheap energy at their command that they can do whatever they want whenever they want it. And not only that, then they start exporting this new American petroleum dream to the rest of the world, beginning this whole process of globalization, funded now by cheap oil. Mm -hmm. And in the process, changing the global experience, where the global ideal is now to have as much cheap stuff that energy slaves can overproduce and make, provided you fund them with enough cheap oil or cheap energy. So, you you know, that the goal of human life now is very materialistic, is very narcissistic. So the Americans not only change themselves, but in the process they've also changed the global ideal about, you know, what does it mean to be human? So we're now grappling with, with some pretty profoundly poisonous notions about what it really means to be a human being on this planet. You know, you're you're nothing unless you are consuming enormous amounts of cheap stuff that you don't need. And so that's
1: where I wanted to close out, is to close out with, with thinking about that and knowing the magnitude of our energy transition and predicament that we have. Let's jump forward. It's the year 2050. And what do you think it'll be like to to live in the year 2050 and will there be some kind of instantaneous lack of system functioning where everything just breaks down or will it be very gradual or will we all be living in megacities that are extremely dense with eco-density? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I'm not a very good forecaster and I really don't know what the world will look like in 2050. And I think what we fail to appreciate that, that most forecasting is wrong. <laughs> The future is entirely uncertain and unpredictable. Uh, You know, and I could probably say this. I think there are a lot of ordinary people who are extremely uncomfortable with business as usual and they are making changes in their own lives and they are not waiting for governments or for corporations to do that. So I think we will see more of that in the future. I think it is unpredictable how shrinking political institutions are going to respond to these expensive flows of energy so how the world is going to look will we see more conflict i don't know i mean we have all been about acceleration so are we going to be able to slow down we have used our energy slaves to be largely disengaged, to be distracted, to be alienated. How difficult are we going to find it to become connected again, to be essentially more human and more dependent on human energy and community energy and family energy to get stuff done? We have used cheap energy to grow economies like wildfire. Will we be able to use? scarce and more expensive energy to learn how to grow like trees as uh, Wendell Berry put it. We have used cheap energy to grow big things like big institutions and European unions and big federal governments and powerful corporations like ExxonMobil and Walmart and Volkswagen and Total and and as energy becomes more expensive and scarce will we be able to become small again. One of the, the Great economists from Europe, Leopold Kor, you know, often said that the chief cause of all misery was bigness. And so, of course, the solution is not union, but disunion, division. Those are the kind of issues I know we're, we're gonna to have to grapple with. How successfully we will grapple with them as a society is anybody's guess. We haven't been here before not certainly in the same scale.
1: Episode number seventy six of the Extra Environmentalist, and next we're speaking with Chris Nelder about stories of energy transition.
6: The first story that everyone's heard a lot about is the one about fracking in the United States, how tight oil and shale gas are suddenly creating a new abundance, that it's going to turn America into an energy superpower that can compete with OPEC, that we're going to produce more oil than Saudi Arabia, we're going to be Saudi America that it's going to change the balance of geopolitics in the world. It might even cure cancer, I'm not sure. But <laughs> that's the story that we've been given for the last several years since since fracking started. And really that story is one that's been very vigorously promoted by the oil and gas industry. And there's a lot of reasons that they need to promote that story. But basically, it's not true. The US, first of all, will never produce more oil than Saudi Arabia. We might produce more oil and natural gas liquids combined than Saudi Arabia, but not oil. And so there's a bit of a misdirection there. Second, it doesn't matter if we produce more oil than Saudi Arabia, except if you want to beat your chest about it. What matters is, does it make our economy better? Is it something that consumers can afford? And the fact is that tight oil is very expensive. It's one of the most expensive sources of new oil that we can drill for today. So fracking is not cheap and as a result, it has produced a certain upward pressure on the global price of oil. And ultimately, I believe that's going to lead us to a point where oil has become too expensive for consumers and they start to find ways to do without it. So I'm not sure how useful that whole narrative about the new abundance in Saudi America actually is. I mean, the fact is that for the last several years, we've been told that the U.S. is already an exporter of oil and gas. I've seen this story told on CNBC, on all the major news outlets. It's not true. The U.S. is still a net importer of both oil and and natural gas and so it's this new dialogue about how we're going to suddenly start exporting a lot of oil and gas as a tool against Vladimir Putin in the Ukraine Crimea <laughs> crisis you know I don't know how a net importer can possibly export enough oil and gas to do anything geopolitically so it's just sort of silly I guess the other counter narrative is the one of renewables suddenly taking off and there's a lot of validity to that unfortunately grid power like oil is is a very complex subject. It's not something that very many people understand very well. It's beginning to happen in a big way in the United States, but I think really the big action in renewable growth is happening outside of the United States and Europe. It's happening in Latin America, it's happening in Asia, it's happening in, in Africa. In 2013, for example, China installed 12 gigawatts of solar capacity. Well, the United States had about 10 gigawatts of solar capacity in total. That's like built over all time. China installed more than that in one year. And this coming year and in 2014, they're expected to install even more, I think uh, 13 to 14 gigawatts. So energy transition is happening, but in a lot of ways it's, it's not necessarily happening where many people think. Solar and wind, for example, still provide about 4% of global electricity supply. But worldwide, if you include hydro and biomass, that's closer to 23%. And then, of course, those are smaller fractions than the total energy supply. So it's a complex subject. There's a lot of data that you have to understand, not very People do it very well, and and most of the people in the media really do it badly. So we have these different narratives going on, and underneath all of that is the narrative about peak oil, which is still very much intact.
1: And we will get back to peak oil in just a minute, but another energy transition narrative is one about nuclear power, climate change, and growing energy demands over the next century— And an organization called the Breakthrough Institute has made a documentary called Pandora's Promise that really summarizes this story of energy transition to nuclear power for climate change reasons. And I wanted to play just a short clip from it to set up our next segment.
6: We accepted most of the
1: basic ideas
4: of the environmental movement. We're all going to start using renewables. Go solar! It really took us getting clear about how big the gap was between fossil fuels and renewables for us to take a second look at nuclear. We can have a world of seven,
6: eight, nine, even 10 billion people that are living high-energy, resource-intensive, modern lives without killing the climate. And that's exciting.
0: What do we know about the Breakthrough Institute and and the idea about nuclear power as a narrative to replace fossil fuels?
6: Well, I, I don't know that much about the Breakthrough Institute or where they get their funding, but it's very clear to me that they firmly believe that nuclear power is the only solution. And they have actively written and spoken against deploying renewable energy in favor of deploying nuclear power, claiming that renewable energy just isn't sufficiently advanced. And so they advocate for investing heavily in R&D, but not for deploying renewable energy, whereas they are absolutely convinced that deploying nuclear energy right now is the right way to go forward. And they've come up with a number of arguments to make that point. But I don't really buy it. There's been a lot of very strange arguments that they've made, and it just it doesn't make sense to me. You know, first of all, the world's demand for energy very well may not quadruple. Forecast that assumes that the population grows probably to nine point five billion people by twenty fifty, that we all continue to grow on roughly the same energy budget that we currently live on, and a number of other assumptions that are probably not true. I don't think that we're going to reach nine point five billion people on this planet. And I don't think that we could or should aspire to keep living on the same per capita energy budget as we do today. And there's so much that we can do with efficiency, for example, to reduce the amount of energy that we consume and there's no reason to think that the developing world should follow the same path as the developed world did to develop their energy supplies. There's a lot that they can do to live more efficiently, to live on a more efficient energy platform that isn't as reliant on fossil fuels in particular, but also that uses electricity a lot more efficiently. And they've also made some very bizarre arguments of comparing nuclear versus solar. For example, they had an article in 2013 claiming that the cost of German solar in in the German energy transition was four times as expensive as the cost of a nuclear plant that's now being built in Finland. But I looked very carefully at their analysis, and it was just flat wrong. They did a partial analysis of the cost of the nuclear plant based on the developer's cost estimate, which is not the right way to do it. You want to take the levelized cost of energy, which is a complex subject we don't have to get into now. And they compared that to the cost of all installed German solar from 2000 to 2011, which is a period in which the price of solar fell dramatically, which Schellenberger and Nordhaus even recognized but they didn't recognize it in their analysis. They weighted the much higher costs of the past decade in solar, not the current costs, against the cost of a finished nuclear plant, which was then expected to be completed in 2016. But that nuclear plant was actually originally supposed to enter service in 2009. And we just recently learned, I don't even know if I can pronounce this, the Olkiluoto 3 reactor has been delayed again. Uh, Finland can't even give a start date now. It's going to be delayed until at least 2018. And Arriva, the developer, has taken what they call provisions, which I take means losses, of over $4 billion on this plant. Wow. So it was just a bizarre thing to take the accumulated cost of solar in Germany over a decade in which those costs plummeted, and compare that to the cost of a nuclear plant, which isn't going to be finished for years now, which has already accumulated $4 billion in losses. By the time that nuclear plant gets online, solar is definitely going to be cheaper. And in fact, depending on how you want to look at it, it already is. An analysis based on the actual unsubsidized cost of German solar in 2016 would find that the cost is below that of nuclear power, not four times as expensive. And even the subsidized cost would be lower. As Craig Morris pointed out at Renewables International, he's my favorite English language observer on the German energy transition, the lowest solar PV feed-in tariff of 13 cents per kilowatt hour on Germany's sliding scale is already below the cost of EDF's proposed new nuclear plant in the UK, which is coming in at 15 cents a kilowatt hour. And Germany's highest solar feed-in tariff will soon be too. At 13 cents a kilowatt hour. You know, for another example, look at the the new nuclear plant in the UK they just signed a deal on. Comes in at 92 euros per megawatt hour when it starts. And that's inflation adjusted over like 25 years. So compare that to the latest solar plants and wind plants being installed in the United States. We just had an announcement this last week of the cheapest solar project that's ever been signed in the United States, 150 megawatts at below $50 a megawatt hour. So that's about half the price of this nuclear plant that's been proposed for the UK, which won't even be built for, for several more years yet. I mean, solar is already half the price of that in the United States. So it sounds
0: like so to me that solar is the wise man's investment choice going forward if you're to be a, a betting man. Solar would be the way to go forward. I, I sure think
6: so. I mean, that new solar plant in the U.S., that benefits from the investment tax credit, okay, which is about 30%. But even if you take that away and the solar plant is now selling its power for, let's say, seven and a half cents a kilowatt hour, that's still cheaper than nuclear power and coal power in the United States. And it's just... Barely, it's about half a cent a kilowatt hour more expensive than gas-fired power in the United States. But if you look at the trajectory of natural gas prices over the next 20 years, which is the time frame you should be comparing, you know, if you're talking about a solar plant or a gas turbine, it's going to be cheaper than gas, too. It is going to be the cheapest power you can generate, period. Period. And the same thing is becoming true for wind.
0: Why do people even consider nuclear power instead of solar? I, I, I don't
6: know. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I can only speculate. On the one hand, a lot of people, I think, are carrying around mental models of renewables being this sort of toy that's really expensive. They just haven't paid attention to the phenomenal cost decrease that have happened over the past decade. So maybe their information is out of date. Second, I think some people just look at the trajectory of population and they look at the trajectory of energy growth over time and they assume that those things are sacrosanct. And then they say, well, there's no way that renewables can scale up to meet this demand. Well, that's true. But I don't think those projections are accurate. All over the developed world, okay, so the OECD countries, we've seen electricity demand, which is what we're talking about here with nuclear and renewables, has actually been falling since about 2005. It's happened all over Europe, it's happening in the US, and it's happening in Australia. And in some cases, we've actually got a problem of overcapacity where the utilities have an excess of generating assets that aren't running often enough now to justify their expense. And so they're actually looking at a real future of potentially stranded generating assets with these big coal and gas and nuclear power plants. Exelon, for example, which is the largest operator of nuclear plants in the United States, just recently said that it would shut down some of its nuclear plants this year if the prospects for their profitable operation don't improve. You know, in the United States, you're really in trouble trying to operate a nuclear plant now. And part of that is because natural gas is so cheap that nuclear can't compete. And part of it is because with more and more wind and solar coming onto the grid, these are power plants where the fuel is free. So once they're built, when those things are putting out power, they are able to underbid pretty much any other generating source. The most profitable part of the generating day is the middle of the day, and that's when solar is pumping out. And so the most profitable grid power, which was being generated in the middle of the day by nuclear plants, is now being taken away by solar. And so it just doesn't make any sense. You know, I think people have sort of faulty mental models of what the future looks like in terms of power demand in terms of population growth, and I think in terms of what the real costs today and in the future are going to be for renewable power and nuclear power.
1: A core part of the story we were just talking about in the audio we were playing from Pandora's Promise film is this idea that we're going to hit, you know, nine or 10 billion people and consume two, three, four times as much energy as we do now. But one story that really counters that is the idea of geologic depletion of oil output in the peak oil story. Now, reflecting back on a few years of recession and very slow growth in output for global oil companies, how is the peak oil story stacking up? Is that really what can explain this overcapacity that you're talking about in utility companies where now the growth in demand for electricity is not really where it was expected to be?
6: I would really separate the peak oil story from the grid power story. There's really not that much of global oil demand is used to produce electricity. Oil is primarily a transportation fuel. So the overcapacity is really in grid power and most of that is nuclear and coal and natural gas. But with respect to the peak oil story, it's very much intact. The story of peak oil was that as you reached sort of the peak in global oil production, it becomes very expensive because the quality of the resource base, the quality of the reservoirs, the rocks that you're drawing up the oil and gas from is now declining. You've gone through the cheap and easy stuff and you're getting down to the difficult, expensive stuff. And that's precisely what has happened. Light, tight oil and the days of cheap and easy oil ended. That growth ended in 2005. And since then, We've been moving more and more towards stuff like tide oil from fracking, deep water oil and tar sands and so on. And that stuff is very expensive and it's difficult. And it's also fraught with a lot of risk, as we discovered in the Deepwater Horizon blowout, as we discovered with Shell's attempt to start drilling in the Arctic last year. You know, it's just problem after problem, lots of technical challenges Very risky, very dangerous. Well, that's what happens when you get into the hard, difficult stuff. And at some point, it just becomes so difficult and so expensive to try to keep your production rate growing that it flattens out. Okay, so that's what happened starting in 2012. Now, you know, it's grown just a little bit since 2012 globally, but most of that has actually not been oil. Most of that has been natural gas, liquids and biofuels. And then there comes a point where no matter what you do, you can't keep increasing the rate of oil production and it starts to fall. And that will probably be the case at any reasonable price. I mean, obviously, if the world were suddenly willing to pay $20 a gallon for gasoline, I think we could continue to increase the production uh, rate of oil.
0: Yeah, but, right. That's but, not gonna happen.
6: Man. But that's not realistic. And so, what you have to do is you have to bound the question between what's a realistic price that people can pay and what's the real cost of producing oil as you go forward. So, what's happened? Capital spending, CapEx, by the world's publicly listed oil majors has increased more than a factor of five since 2000, but their production of oil has actually fallen back to the 2000 level after the last couple of years of very modest increases.
1: Talking about capital expenditures, that's maybe not a term that comes into most people's lives. What does that mean when you say that capital expenditures by these oil companies has increased by a factor of five?
6: Well, I mean, there's really two ways to look at the cost of doing something, right? So the initial cost, what you spend to drill a well or to buy a house or whatever, that's the capital expenditure. And then there's the operating cost, what it costs to keep producing from that well or to maintain that house. Okay, so it's CapEx and OpEx. So that's all it is. CapEx, we're basically talking about upstream spending, midstream spending in the in the oil industry. That's drilling wells, doing the completions, putting together the processing systems and the transport and so on. So they've spent more and more money to try to keep finding more oil reserves and getting those new oil supplies to market. But the actual supply is just not keeping up with the explosion in costs.
1: So it's it's literally the net energy return balance going down, the energy return on money invested actually decreasing.
6: Yes, it is. Return on money invested, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, the return on energy invested is also probably dropping, but those are different subjects and they should not be said in the same sentence. (laughs) So let's not make this a conversation about EROI. It's not. It's about spending, okay? You know, the Wall Street Journal recently pointed out that oil and gas production by a couple of those majors, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Royal Dutch Shell, their production has fallen over the past five years, despite their spending more than a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion on new projects. Chevron's costs have jumped 56% since 2010, and their production is actually falling, with all of that spending. And so it's denting the profits of these big oil companies and their investors are starting to get very nervous. Yeah, I was going to say, what do shareholders have to say about that? They're demanding higher dividends. They're demanding share repurchases. I mean, there's really a couple of ways if you're an oil company to keep up the market capitalization, you know, the, the market valuation of your company. You can keep putting more reserves on the books. Okay, so that's basically considered money in the bank. You know, it's oil that you've found, but you haven't produced yet. It's sitting underground, waiting you to free to produce it. It's considered to be an asset. And that's generally through the course of the oil industry, how they've continued to maintain their valuations. Even as they're pumping these reservoirs dry, as long as they keep exploring and discovering more to keep those assets up on the balance sheet, their valuation goes up along with the price of oil. But In recent years, they've had a harder and harder time replacing reserves. Reserves have actually started to fall. So now they've switched over to different metrics like return on capital employed and, you know, these other sorts of accounting tricks. But it's all basically trying to hide the fact that it's just getting harder and more expensive to produce oil. And so if that's the case and you can't keep adding reserves to your balance sheet to keep up the valuation of your company is to buy shares back, put them back on the company balance sheet so that you've got a shrinking pool of shareholders, basically. So that's one way to prop up your valuation. And then the other thing to do is to just pay out more money and dividends so that you're no longer a growth company, you're now a yield company. But it's just gotten very difficult. I mean, most people, for example, think of Exxon as an oil company. Well, Exxon now has more gas reserves on its balance sheet than it does oil because its efforts to explore and find more oil and put that on its balance sheet have just been, I won't say they've been failures. They have had some successes, but it's just gotten too difficult to keep up the valuation of the company. And so they're putting more and more natural gas and natural gas liquids on their balance sheet. Well, That's what happens when you have to leave oil behind. I mean, this is an industry in sunset. And the industry is very nervous about this. There's trillions of dollars of capital on the line. And so, obviously, they've been very anxious to tell the biggest possible story about fracking and incipient energy independence for the United States as a way of sort of sweeping that underlying story under the rug. And they've been pretty successful at doing that for the last couple of years. But the most transparent models that I've seen for the future of tight oil are that it is going to be back into decline in the United States before 2020. I think we've got probably two, three more years of modest growth in tide oil. And throughout the next two or three years, we're going to be treated to lots more stories about how peak oil is really dumb and fracking has buried the entire notion and we're going to be energy independent and all that stuff. But this is just a very temporary thing. And it's also a very expensive bump in energy production. And I think by 2020, U.S. oil production is going to be turning back down again. The thing about that is that when you're fracking, okay, what you're doing is you're going into what's called the source rocks. This is the shale that you're extracting this oil from or this gas is where hydrocarbons were formed, okay? That's where ancient organic matter plankton and so on, were compressed and cooked down over geological time, hundreds of millions of years, and turned into oil. That happened in the source rocks. That's what the shale is, it's the source rocks. So until we actually found a commercially viable way through hydrofracking and horizontal drilling to produce oil from these shale formations, we were instead producing the oil that migrated up from these shale formations and accumulated in these reservoirs above the shale. So that was the era of cheap and easy oil was going through these accumulated reservoirs. Now that we've gone through the cheap and easy oil, now we're getting down into the source rocks themselves, the shales. And when that game is over, okay, when you've, when you've reached the maximum exploitation of your shale, of your source rocks, and that production starts to turn down again, then there's nowhere else to go. That's the end of the line. I am a lineman
0: for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun For another overload I hear you singing in the wires I can hear you through the wind
4: One of the most crucial aspects of our energy modeling and scenario quantification is how much energy in
2: total is the world going to use in 2050?
0: A lot of mega cities are going to be built in the coming decades.
4: We're
2: talking about the equivalent of a new
4: city of a million people every week that is an incredible demand most of the world's resources are consumed by the cities we understand demand will rise so we have to of course find ways of bridging the gap between the demand and the supply decisions that we take now are going to have a major impact on decades to come traditionally when you do forecasting you tend to do demand constrained forecasting That it's demand-driven forecasting where you start from the top and go to the bottom. And the top is going to be typically GDP growth. And then you multiply that by some coefficient to get uh, demand growth for whatever you like, whether that's automobiles or housing or, in our case, oil. So oil demand is then a function of GDP growth with some variance. And then that, in turn, leads to supply growth. Right? So supply follows demand. That's traditional forecasting. And if you're a forecaster or an analyst, you could spend your whole career and never use any other methodology than this. So if you say a BP forecast, this is what they mean. Everybody uses this, all the investment banks, all the oil majors, uh, the US and foreign governments all use this. Now, what we've been using for oil and gas is supply constraint forecasting, supply driven forecasting. We then say oil demand will essentially be 100% of oil supply, and then the linkage to GDP is then a function of that oil supply growth. So, This all suggests that we are short on oil, that oil remains expensive, and that that expensive oil is preventing the economy from operating the way it has traditionally been accustomed to do so. Let's talk about the oil majors a little bit. Oil production has faltered, even as CapEx has soared. The oil majors, the oil majors here, just for the record, are are British Gas, BP, Conoco, Chevron, ENI, Oxy, Petrobras, Shell, Statoil, Total, and Exxon. Okay. These are the primary traded public companies. So their production is exactly where it was. Crude oil production is exactly where it was in 2000. In fact, it's down from where it was in 2008, 9, or 10. Um, but their capex is up by a factor of five, from $50 billion to $262 billion during that period. That's phenomenal. That means in nominal terms, the productivity of capital has fallen by a factor of five over a decade. Okay, that's a phenomenal unwind of an industry. I hear you singing in the wires.
0: I can hear you through the wires.
1: You are listening to Extra Environmentalist, episode number 76, and we are speaking with Chris Nelder about energy transition.
2: It's still on the line.
1: because we're talking about energy transition stories and we've just been talking about peak oil. One of the things that I hear frequently and and read on blogs and the internet is that, building renewables won't ever work because basically what you were just talking about in the drop off in oil production and the difficult economic consequences that that will have, especially later this decade that it's already having, but especially later this decade would actually prevent us from building out renewable energy infrastructure. What do you have to say to that kind of line of argumentation?
6: Uh, I've made that argument myself. I'm very concerned about it. If we do, in fact, have global oil production beginning its decline around 2015, which has been my call for quite a few years now, and when you actually calculate the decline rates and you look at how much oil would be lost on the global market year after year after year, and then you start to think about what is the effect on the global economy of losing 5% and then 10% and then 20% of global oil production. You know, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to think, wow, it's really going to start being difficult to maintain a functioning economy. It's going to be hard to maintain global shipping. It's going to be hard to maintain an industry of, let's say, big wind turbines where the supply chain for the parts in those turbines might go all the way around the world. So my view has been that we should build as much renewable capacity as possible for the next 20 years, while the availability of oil is reasonably good and the price is reasonably acceptable. I think once you get out past, say, 2030, 2035, it's going to be quite difficult and quite expensive to build anything or deploy anything that requires a lot of shipping or that requires parts coming from all around the world. So I subscribe to that notion. Now, some people will take this question a step further and say, well, what about later in the century when you get out to 2070 or 2080, when most of the oil is gone? Most of the natural gas is gone. What about then? Like, how do you build wind turbines and solar panels and get them installed? Well, I think that's an interesting question, but the more I think about it, the more I conclude that we just don't have enough information to answer that question right now. It's, it's just, it's formally unanswerable. There's too many questions, too many uncertainties about how people will react what will happen to the geopolitical environment, what will happen to population, what will happen to energy supply. There's just way too many X factors, we don't know. I think it's conceivable, maybe somewhat remotely conceivable, but maybe conceivable that at some point we could have an entirely, you know, in the the 22nd century perhaps, we could have an entirely renewably powered economy where we're actually able to do things like, mining and smelting and manufacturing and transportation and installation and all of that using only renewable electricity as the energy source and to drive all the machines or maybe we'll have you know some very small fraction of the stuff that we currently use liquid fuels for that we still are able to power using some sort of biofuels. But it's just not a formally answerable question. And I've batted this question around a lot, especially with people who are literate on the EROI question. What's the EROI of these renewable fuels? Can you run a civilization on them? And I've looked at these studies on solar and on cellulosic ethanol, other kinds of biofuels and wind and so on. And I just don't think they're conclusive. I've got so many issues with these analyses. I don't think it's possible to really be terribly conclusive about what it all means. One thing I do know is that we have to build as much renewable capacity as we possibly can in the next 20 years while oil is reasonably available and reasonably priced.
1: One thing that I have seen recently is Stephen Koppitz gave a really nice presentation on the difference between demand models and supply models. And you were talking earlier about the kind of defective models that we're using to make energy decisions, especially in these stories that back up the decision to build more nuclear power capacity. And in this presentation, and I'll link to it in our show notes so our listeners can find it and and reference it and know what we're talking about. But he gets into this section about GDP growth and forecasting errors and how the typical macroeconomic models are having difficulty coming to terms with how slow growth is right now, because they're using the same models they have for a long time. And Stephen Coppett's his explanation, and I think I hope I'm saying his last name right. In his presentation, he's talking about how the repricing of oil that occurred in that first decade of the 21st century is really this missing factor in their models and why growth is moving so slowly at the moment. And so you were just talking about projecting out uh, several decades and how the situation is going to get much worse. Do you think that the kind of thinking that you are putting forward there will gain any kind of mainstream traction? That the reason why? why the economy is growing so slowly and the reason why this whole system is malfunctioning is because of energy depletion?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of a fait accompli at some point, right? Some people who understand energy and who understand economics, and that's a really small group of people. <laughs> Most people seem to understand energy or economics, but right. not both. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of us really started to, to look at energy supply particularly the fact that oil supply stopped growing in 2005 as a real factor in the global economic situation, that the rising price of oil as it became increasingly difficult to produce new supply acted as a brake on the global economy. James Hamilton did some good work on that. Quite a number of other people have looked into that question. And I think that's very much the case. And Kopitz or Copitz, I don't know how to pronounce his name either. His presentation was fantastic. I think anyone could spend an hour looking at his presentation would understand everything they could possibly need to know about the global oil supply and demand and price situation. It was just a perfect encapsulation of everything that you need to know. But one of the key things that he really brings out in his presentation is that historically everyone has modeled future oil supply from a demand perspective. You know, that's what the IEA does. That's what the EIA does. That's what the whole alphabet soup of agencies do. You know, They, they just forecast demand and then they say, well, there will be supply and it'll be at an acceptable price. And that's fine while you're in over a century of continually growing oil supply that's relatively cheap. But that's not the case anymore. We've exited that era in history. We've now gotten into a supply-constrained world. So that's what his firm does. They look at a supply-based model, and it actually has given them much better guidance for what price is actually done, for what's actually happening in the global economy and and for what's actually likely to happen in the future so i absolutely subscribe to that ideally we would have very sophisticated models that would actually be able to dynamically model what the future supply of of fossil fuels is likely to be what its price is what the effect will be on demand what the possible substitutions will be how geopolitics will react to that and so on but this this is just a very complex question and as far as i know nobody nobody even is close to having a good model no one in the world has a model that's sophisticated enough to do all of that to really provide a multivariate uh, model of the global economy with with a constrained oil supply
0: I know that Germany has a has an interesting energy transition going on right now. Is their strategy one that might work? Or should the United States think about adopting that strategy? I think the German
6: model is fantastic. I've I've written quite a bit about it myself. They have managed to shut down most of their nuclear capacity. They're on course to phase it out entirely, while growing their renewable supply from almost nothing to. 25% of their energy supply in, a, in about a, in a little more than a decade. So far, it's been a very popular thing. Most Germans support it. Most Germans want to see the energy transition continuing. Most of the solar capacity and wind capacity, I believe in Germany is actually not owned by the utilities. It's actually owned by the public where they buy small shares in these little solar and wind projects. So everyone's a stakeholder and it's, it's been highly effective Germany does not have a great solar resource. I mean, the only the only part of the United States that has worse solar insulation is like Seattle, but they have managed to do it. They've managed to do it at a reasonable price and they have more solar capacity per capita than any other country in the world. So naturally, they've been the target of incumbents who are trying to fight energy transition and their mouthpieces in the press. You know, over there, it's uh, like Der Spiegel constantly talking down the, the energy transition, constantly distorting the debate with sort of mistaken narratives about how it's. Why grid power is so expensive? Well, guess what? Most of it isn't because of the feed-in tariffs for the solar. You know, how expensive grid power would have been without it. Their recent uptick in coal power, well, it's not really because of their phasing out nuclear. And it's not really because of their adoption of renewable power. If Germany brought its nuclear reactors back online today, it would not displace coal. It would displace gas because gas is far more expensive than coal over there. So it's, it's a very complex situation. Situation, but I'm definitely a fan. I think Germany is doing a wonderful job of sort of showing the rest of the world how you can, in fact, produce a large percentage of your grid power from variable sources like wind and solar. And in so doing, you can do it at a, at a reasonable price and you can do it without the grid falling down. In fact, Germany now has the most reliable grid in Europe. If you go back to like 1993, people were saying, oh, if Germany ever had more than 3% of its grid power from renewables, the grid would fall over because it's intermittent and it's much too expensive and it's silly and stupid. Well, guess what? They've now got 25% of their power from such sources and it's got the most reliable grid in Europe. But the other side of that story is that their incumbent utility industry is now in serious, serious trouble. Germany's three largest utilities, E.ON, RWE, and ENBW, are struggling with what the CEO of RWE called the worst structural crisis in the history of energy supply. They've had falling consumption, growing renewable power, which actually cut the wholesale price of electricity by 60% since 2008, which has made it unprofitable to continue operating coal, gas, and oil-fired plants. E.ON and RWE are going to close or mothball 15 gigawatts of gas and coal-fired plants, in the coming years. And there's another 12 gigawatts of nuclear plants that are going to be retired by 2020.
1: And that's just all sunk investment costs that then has to be written down, right? That's right.
6: RWE is going to write down about $4 billion on those assets. You know, the returns on invested capital of of the three utilities are going to fall from about 7.7% in 2013 to 6.5% in 2015. Well, guess what? At that point... Pension funds and other fixed income investors who have normally been invested in the utility industry are going to start looking at green bonds and climate bonds, which are based on renewable energy projects and energy efficiency projects, because that's where they can get at least a fairly equivalent return, but with a lot less risk you know there's no risk of investing in a solar plant and then having its cost suddenly explode in the future once it's built it's it your your cost is sunk the day that it's gone into operation and it's not going to go up again there's no regulatory risk there's no risk to the public there's no chance of what do you call it a, a, a solar spill you know it's a nice day So the risk is just so much less in renewables. And if the returns from the utility industry are actually falling now to that point, we've got every reason to believe that 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 money is going to start looking into the green bonds and the climate bond sector. And in fact, it already is. Bond issuance in green bonds jumped from $2 billion globally in 2012 to $11 billion in 2013. And this year, it's going to double. We're, we're probably going to see another $15 billion invested in green bonds this year.
0: Wow. Is there a way to catalyze this movement, this energy transition movement? Is there a way to you know move away, divest ourselves from fossil fuels, and move towards this energy transition more quickly?
6: Yeah, no, absolutely. First of all, I think divesting from fossil fuel producers is a little like trying to step on the brake of a runaway car i mean you might slow it down a little but you're not going to stop it and eventually the brakes are going to burn out anyway and you're just going to continue hurtling down the hill i don't think that there's any way to actually deprive the fossil fuel industry of 100 percent of its funding i mean the universities could step out the pension funds can step out and what happens next well banks and hedge funds step in So I don't think the divestment strategy to get out of fossil fuels is actually the right way to go about catalyzing energy transition. It's a political tool, and it's useful for organizing public pressure. And for some people who are more minded toward organizing people, that's a great strategy, and I'm not going to argue that. But I don't think that it's a way to catalyze energy transition because – that's not the way the global economy works the global economy runs on fossil fuels and especially oil oil is the transportation fuel of the world we can't do much of anything without it today hopefully in the future we can but right now we can't so if we want to catalyze energy transition then i think we ought to do it directly by investing in energy efficiency investing in renewable energy production and grid development so that we can do things to accommodate higher and higher percentages of renewable power on the grid and especially in transportation transition. The very best way that we can get off the needle of oil is to stop driving cars and trucks and switch to rail. I mean, that is absolutely the biggest possible way that we can reduce our oil consumption. So. That's the first thing. And in the same way, I kind of feel the same thing about climate change. We ought to focus on what fuel we put into the engine of the world economy, not just try to stuff up its tailpipe, which is what the carbon emission strategy has been so far, the Kyoto and Copenhagen and so on. Well, of course, if you're just going to try to stuff up the tailpipe, all you're going to do is sort of back things up and create back pressure and the engine would stop and nobody's going anywhere. Well, that's not the way to do it. You have to provide an alternative fuel so i think that focusing on carbon emissions is approaching the problem backwards and i would really have to say the same thing about about divestment from fossil fuels it's not enough to try to clamp down on fossil fuels and hope that the market will suddenly sort of automatically switch to renewables energy we should directly try to switch to renewable fuels first if we do that then the carbon emissions problem will take care of itself and we'll be sure that we're going to wind up with a clean economy, not just hope that it works out that way indirectly.
1: Possibly some of the people listening right now are either involved in the divestment movement or are wanting to divest themselves personally from fossil fuel companies. If you were to sit down with somebody who's lobbying their university endowment manager or actually speaking to say a university or pension fund endowment manager and saying, here's your options for investing in renewables and in this energy transition, what would you say to them? And what are some of the new investment possibilities that are coming along to invest in renewables?
6: Well, I think I would probably, first of all, try to get them to understand the likely trajectories of cost for all the different fuels, to understand what energy transition means in terms of grid power and in terms of transportation, and to understand things from sort of a long-term perspective. I think, for example, Warren Buffett has been very smart about this for investing in rail and investing in heavily in big wind and solar farms. I think the carbon bubble story is real in the sense that there will be a significant chunk of fossil fuel reserves that are currently on the books of producers, both the national and independent companies, that won't end up being produced. But the question is why? See, I don't think those fossil fuel reserves will wind up stranded because of carbon policy. It would be nice if the world could suddenly get its act together and put a carbon policy in place so that the market could do its thing and so on, and we'd all wind up eventually with energy transition. But I don't think the history of attempts to form carbon policy globally speak very well to that possibility. I don't think that these fossil fuel reserves are going to be stranded due to divestment either, just because there will always be other money to replace the money that's divested. I think that The carbon bubble is real, and those fossil fuel reserves on the balance sheets are potentially stranded for two different reasons. First, I think renewable energy is undercutting coal and natural gas for grid power generation, and that's happening on price alone. That's already happening now. That's what's happening in Germany. That's what's happening in parts of the U.S. It's happening all over the world. Second, oil will be stranded as the cost of production finally gets high enough that consumers can't afford it anymore. The future of oil is really a race between improving the efficiency of vehicles and the escalating cost of production. So which will win? If efficiency improves quickly enough, say if we can replace a billion inefficient vehicles worldwide with vehicles that are two to three times as efficient within the next 20 years, then perhaps we could adjust to the rising cost of oil production and we would just keep using it. But if the cost escalation in oil production goes up faster than we can adjust to it by replacing vehicles, then we'll simply be forced out of our cars. And most of us will switch to public transportation or other various forms of transportation that don't require oil, like walking or bicycling or electric vehicles and hopefully rail. So my bet is that it's going to be the latter. I don't think we can replace enough inefficient vehicles quickly enough to keep up with the cost escalation in oil production. So if I were going to advise a money manager on what to do, I would say reduce your exposure to potentially stranded assets. I mean, maybe they're not going to be stranded right away. Maybe that thesis doesn't actually really take root for another 10 years or so. Who knows? Who cares? If you can get reasonable returns on green bonds, which are invested in, renewable energy projects and efficiency projects, at basically zero risk in this environment, then I think you should allocate at least part of your portfolio to that. I think that investing in rail makes great sense because the price of oil is only going to get higher in the future, at least until it hits the limit of consumers' pain tolerance. And rail will always be a very highly efficient way to move people and freight around. And I would advise them to to really look carefully at some of the creative financing that's happening right now to do energy retrofits. There are some really creative people out there that are figuring out how to replace all the streetlights in a city, for example, and actually cut the city a check for $40 million when they sign the deal. And the city doesn't have to pay out a single dime to do that swap. And it's actually going to reduce their operational costs over the lifetime of the project. I mean, it's a no brainer, but this is the kind of efficiency stuff that we really need to look at in a serious way as an investment thesis, I think over the next 20 years, because that's how you do energy transition, especially without expensive, risky nuclear plants that just always are over budget and always take years longer to build than you think they will and always need hundreds of billions of dollars worth of federal money in terms of insurance backstops and federal loan guarantees and handling the nuclear waste, which we still don't have a solution for. Never mind that on past trends, that global energy consumption is going to be 4X in the future. It's not. What's going to happen is we're going to improve efficiency through creative financing. We're going to stop all the thermal losses. We're going to find ways to run vehicles more efficiently and then hopefully Get out of our vehicles entirely and go to rail and bicycles and small circuit buses and so on.
0: So aside from opening a bike store and investing in solar, what other great investments would you recommend for people and looking to invest in the future right now?
6: Well, you know, if you're a homeowner, I think one of the best investments you can make is just improving the efficiency of your house. There's a lot of leaky houses out there that have little to no insulation that have all kinds of leaks, leaky single pane windows and so on. There's just trillions and trillions of dollars worth of infrastructure rebuilding that we need to do in the built environment to reduce thermal losses. That's a huge thing that that, you know, anyone who owns a building could do. I think one thing that that people should think about is that storage is now becoming a much more viable part of the total energy transition equation. I mean, on the one hand, we've discovered in recent years that you don't actually need storage until you get to a pretty high degree of penetration of renewables on the grid. I think the IEA recently offered a report saying that with a more networked grid, you could provide like about half of total grid power without any particular storage. So it's when you get up to even higher levels that we need more storage. And people have said, well, batteries are too expensive and you can't do hydro everywhere and so on. That is now changing. We're seeing some real innovations happening in the storage market we're seeing a lot of money coming into it a lot of innovation and we're seeing storage as a service so in the same way that you can have a company put solar on your roof under the solar leasing model okay so companies like sunrun sungevity solar city sun edison you can have them put solar on your roof without any money down and actually reduce your monthly bill a little bit. Okay, so it actually doesn't cost you anything to put solar on your roof. There are now companies that are doing that with storage and they're doing it because they can allow, let's say a commercial building to fill up their battery storage at night when power grid prices are cheap and then draw from that instead of from the grid in the middle of the day when when power prices are expensive. So there's actually a big arbitrage there, and these companies are able to take advantage of that arbitrage and actually put a reasonably sized battery array in a commercial building without it costing that business, anything. So that's happening on the storage side. We've had some really interesting developments starting to happen in the lab, which are working their way to the commercial market in battery technology, but also in other forms of storage, like compressed air energy storage in flywheels. You know, There's a real chance, like this recent report from the Rocky Mountain Institute suggested, that consumers are going to be defecting from the grid. So I put some solar on the roof, put some batteries in the basement and just disconnect. It's not impossible. I mean, it's it's been technically possible to be off-grid for many years, of course, but it's expensive. That's no longer going to be the case. It's no longer going to be so expensive. It's actually going to make good economic sense for a lot of people.
1: So to close out, what we're really seeing is rail explosions, coal ash spills, the dark side that maybe was pushed into other parts of the world that we didn't necessarily see in the United States of our reliance on fossil fuels is becoming very real and visceral to a lot of people. The effects of our fossil fuel infrastructure and consumption of fossil fuel resources. Are we really at an energy transition tipping point now? And if you were to project out an ideal Chris Nelder world of energy transition, what would that look like?
6: Well, yes. As I recently wrote, I believe we are at a tipping point. I believe we're at a point where renewables are going to continue to get cheaper. Fossil fuels are going to continue to get more expensive and more risky. People are going to continue to become even more sensitized to the risk of our fossil fuel dependence. And that's just going to continue pushing us to renewables. And I don't think that can be reversed. Not only have we seen all these different exploding trains full of crude oil, gas pipeline explosions. I mean, we just had another one this week, right? In New York City, a couple of people have died whole building blew up. A lot of that is just because of old infrastructure. We've actually seen a lot of natural gas pipelines explode due to old infrastructure. And we've got, you know, all these coal ash spills, rendering water supplies unusable, contaminating rivers and so on. So if you wanna ask yourself, what does the future look like? Or why have we reached a tipping point? You should ask yourself, is any of this reversible? Are solar systems and batteries and wind turbines suddenly going to start getting more expensive again? And is nuclear and coal suddenly start going to get cheaper? No. Is there any reason to think that we're going to see fewer ruptures and spills from oil and gas pipelines that were? Not going to see more of these over a 1,000 coal ash waste sites scattered around the U.S. having problems when a lot of these things have been sitting there for 30 or 40 years and people have sort of even forgotten about them because they're not even being actively filled anymore? No. Is there any reason to think that people in the developing world who still lack reliable power are going to continue turning to filthy diesel generators and kerosene lanterns? Or are they going to adopt these new little solar lanterns, which are now selling several million units a year worldwide? Absolutely. They love their little solar lanterns. They can't afford the cost of kerosene and diesel anyway. A lot of people have suggested that in the same way that that Africa, for example, never just built out the old pots telephone system and instead they just jump straight to mobiles well the same thing is going to be true for them with with grid power they're going to jump straight to small microgrids, small off-grid solar and wind-based systems my call is the energy transition tipping point is here and there's going to be no going back it's hard to see when renewable energy is still just a few percent of global supply and if you're not really paying attention to the trends You could look at renewable energy and say, oh, well, it's just a few percent. Or you can look at energy efficiency improvements and say, yeah, well, it's still expensive. It's uh, a couple points of ROI. It's not that interesting. Yeah, well, when you step back and you look at the trends, it's a whole different picture.
1: that wraps up our conversations with Chris Nelder and Andrew Nikiforic on energy transition and energy slaves. Seth, I wanted to ask you what you thought about using the metaphor of an energy slave in the conversation that I had with Andrew about his book, because I think maybe to some people it could come across as a little bit too hyperbolic because the institution of slavery was so horrific. Is there really a fair comparison between the institution of slavery in history and what we do with energy today? How did you perceive it when you were listening to the conversation?
0: Well, Justin, personally, I really like that phrase. I think it's very descriptive and it really puts into perspective how we interact with our electronics and our energy in general. You know, when you start up your automobile and you push down the pedal, and you start moving forward and you start moving you know faster and faster and faster that's more and more energy that you're using right there just if you think about it as all these people pushing your car or
1: yeah horsepower like measured in horsepower how many horses is it going to take to push you that going
0: that fast you know and that, that really brought up an interesting point with the uh, the cyclists how many cyclists does it take to run a household just to toast a piece of toast for god's sakes i mean you need a whole team of cyclists to, to keep your house running this show i know probably could not be done without the energy slaves working for us. I at least have a hundred right now working in my kitchen, making me dinner. I have uh, you know, the oven going and I have the microwave going a little bit. And this is really accurate and it's appropriate to use this metaphor. Now, to your point there, Justin, about people not really understanding the fact that energy slaves are kind of like a, a throwback to an old institution in the world that we kind of hang our heads about. And we kind of feel that we've gotten past in so many ways. And this kind of civil Revolution and, and evolution of our minds probably could not have happened as effectively without this cheap and available energy that has just given us the boost that we've needed to move past some of this old way of thinking. But really, have we moved past it if in so many ways we are still holding so desperately to the idea that things happen for us without working for them? Just sitting back and relaxing and you know, pushing my foot down the pedal and my car goes 80 miles an hour without even thinking. This is a, a way of thinking that humans have really become comfortable with and lazy about in in a lot of different ways. And I liked the idea also that Andrew talked about is the upping of the cost of all these people that live in our house, these 150 energy slaves that live in our house. It's going to really make for an interesting, interesting time when all these people leave.
1: That takes us into a few news items for today from NPR that we'll link to in the show notes. And the headline is that commuters are ditching cars for public transit in record numbers. And so the whole article is just about the ongoing trend of people taking buses and trains and how cities under 100,000 people have had transit use increases of more than 3.5% in the last year. And in big cities, transit use is actually going up as well. And this is what we were talking about with Chris Nelder, that as energy continues to become more unaffordable there's this ongoing adaptation that's going to happen. And a report from the American Public Transportation Association shows that in the United States, people took more than 10.7 billion trips on public transit last year, which is the highest ridership number in 57 years. One last news item I wanted to touch on before we move into some brief listener feedback is just the story that was in Salon about Fukushima's crisis of manpower, how unskilled and destitute workers have taken over the cleanup process. While a lot of our nuclear power plants are reaching the end of life and needing to be decommissioned. One specific plant that is very much in need of decommissioning is Fukushima as it is leaking radiation. And a lot of advertisements for Fukushima cleanup workers are for people who are unskilled, poorly trained, or without a... Housing. One ad that's recruiting people for Fukushima in Japan was saying, out of work, nowhere to live, nowhere to go, nothing to eat. Come to Fukushima. That's what it says in the online ad. Oh,
0: uh, <laughs> sounds like a. Uh... A skit we've done, Justin.
1: (laughs) I know. It's almost exactly like right out of a skit that we would do.
0: It's interesting that this highly skilled job of cleaning up a nuclear power plant is now being farmed out to people who are hungry. (laughs) It's kind of scary.
1: Yeah, it's terrible because as we were, as we've been talking about with in both of our interviews today, we are running out of money because of fossil fuels becoming more unaffordable, and so our governments don't have the kind of money they thought they would 20 or 30 years ago to properly decommission nuclear plants. And So, in the case of Fukushima, where Japan is facing some very serious economic problems because of shutting down their nuclear power plants. The people who are coming to clean up Fukushima are the poor and the destitute and not the people who are necessarily trained to do that kind of work.
0: Some people who are not Fukushima cleanup workers and are doing just fine without the radiation sickness are our fantastic listeners who have been so very kind as to send us their hard-earned dollars and donate to the show. So special thanks to Kim for sending in a fantastic donation and also for opting not to have a gift sent out. This is an option that every listener has when they donate to not have a gift sent out. This saves money for us and lets that donation do its full work. Thank you so very much for that very generous donation, Kim.
1: Yes, Kim in Quebec City said thanks so much to our Canadian listeners and also thanks to Uh, repeat donor Simon in Norway who recently sent us some awesome photos of himself in Norway out in a snow cave where he's an outdoor life teacher and he created a snow cave and brought an mp3 player and was listening to some of our interviews and sent us some photos and sent us a donation so we really appreciate that Simon and we'll post some of those photos up on our listener photos section in the near future once we finish some super top secret web work that we're doing.
0: Uh, Also, thank you to Linus in Sweden. Thank you so very much for your generous, generous donation.
1: Yes, thanks so much to our Northern European listeners. They are really coming through for us. Really appreciate it, guys. And back over on the West Coast of North America, we have Jay in Seattle To thank for a donation and also Derek in California. So, thanks to both of you. And that means we have a number of t shirts to send out, and those t shirts are being printed as we are recording. They should be at my house later this week and hopefully out in the mail soon. We have such a huge backlog of t shirts to send out, it may be a few more weeks before we put yours in the mail and have it out to you. So thanks again for your patience.
0: In the meantime, go ahead and check out our archive of Extra Environmentalist episodes freely available on iTunes and on our website, which is www.extraenvironmentalist.com. If you want to write into the show to complain about your t-shirt not showing up yet, send us an email at podcast.extraenvironmentalist.com or find us on our SoundCloud page like many of our listeners have already done this week and leave us a voicemail. The fundamental problem with our economic system is that there is an ignorance of sufficiency
6: as a concept. Enough is never enough. Nothing exceeds like excess. Excess is the rule. You always want to go for more than you need. You're rewarded for greed in this system. We always want more. Whatever amount we have, we want more. More production, more consumption, more population, more pollution, more of everything because more is better. That is the fundamental meme of our economic system. Rather than something like harmony with nature is better. What is a balance so that we don't always create more blessings?
0: Now that listener probably has one of the nicest, most eloquent speaking voices of any listener who has ever called into the show. Thank you so very much for that fantastic voicemail. And I think you might have listened to our Goldfish sacks. Skip before where more, more, more is the modus operandi of the day. And you're absolutely right that this idea of more, more, more has permeated pretty much every facet of our society. And people always want more. It's true.
1: Yeah. So thanks for leaving that for us, Steve, on our SoundCloud page. And Anyone who wants to get in touch, you can shoot us a voicemail. You can email us an MP3 file or go onto our SoundCloud page and send us something through our Dropbox. If you want to send us music that you want to hear on the show or voicemails, we accept all kinds of audio files in our Dropbox. And one person who sent us an MP3 file of some reactions that they had to our episode number 73 interview with Frank Rotaring is our listener, Kevin.
7: I had a lot of reaction to Mr. Frank Rotaring. I was disappointed in Mr. Rotering's discussion, and I'm sorry to say that. It's not like you guys gave a bad interview, either. It was lively and entertaining. Rather, it seemed like most of Mr. Rotering's message, most of his entire theory of contractionism, was simply identifying the problems we face, the logic of capitalism, its effects, and the places it goes wrong. That identification, in and of itself, is not revolutionary. Cogent, compelling critiques of capitalism have been around since Marx. Maybe his book goes further, but in the interview I didn't hear much motivation to delve into his book. It seemed like Mr. Rotering was a garden-variety idealist. A dreamer who just assumes everything will turn out nice if only his ideas are implemented. Rotering says a, quote, key insight is that people with more free time will find better ways to express themselves, especially sexually, and this will relieve the stresses we feel. This is not a new idea at all. Hippies have been saying that since the 60s, French libertines since the 19th century. Our zeal for growth must be, quote, sublimated. Future generations will be taken into account. Job loss will not be permitted. It's all these passive verbs. Who does this permitting? Those are the leaders he is aching for, obviously. But more importantly, how does a good leader actively enforce this? Sanctioned wants, he says, are approved by society. How is this approval measured? and enforced, assuming we are to remain a free country. Or are you proposing totalitarianism? He didn't really have any answer to Justin about how can we sell people on a contracted, sustainable lifestyle in the face of all the advertising for the opposite. Now I understand where Mr. Rotering is coming from. Of course most people around us seem like they're sleepwalking through the motions of zombie capitalism for no reason and it looks like they just need a wake-up call. I have come over many years to believe this is not the case. I think most people have seen the problems at some level, even subconsciously. But mostly when I look at America, I am reminded of the old Hindu adage, that it is possible to wake up someone who is sleeping, but it is not possible to wake up someone who is pretending to be asleep. As environmental and economic collapse forces scarcity upon us, people are going to cling much harder to their perceived advantages, not less, as he supposes. I think this is already happening, just like the environmental collapse is already happening. Mr. Rotering, I'm afraid the notion that everyone will willingly and uniformly make the quote right choices, when simply presented with the facts, that particular idea is a relic, which died with the 20th century. Events since then have shown pretty conclusively that people will remain wholeheartedly loyal to a bad idea, for at least as long as it gains them a material advantage, or longer, if the idea is wrapped up in their self-identity, or if they hope that the easy advantage will someday return.
4: Thanks
1: to Kevin for sending us those comments, and we're he, they actually went on for a little bit longer, more than we can play in our very long episode as it stands already today. So I'm going to post those comments in voicemail format on the episode page, so that you can listen and respond as our listening audience as you like. But to get to some of Kevin's points, I think that while even though part of me wants to take Frank's ideas and kind of deny the revolutionary aspect of them, another part of me realizes that he may have a point there. And even though such a revolution may not necessarily play out in the ways that he's talking about, I think it is very clear that we're at a revolutionary moment in many countries around the world and perhaps some of his ideas may be picked up by leaders in those revolutionary movements, but I also think it's a pretty tough sell when a lot of those revolutions are arising because of scarcity in some formats, such as in Ukraine where the economy's been in terrible shape there for a long time, and essentially people are fed up with it, and that's one of the main drivers of the revolution. So implementing a revolution based on the idea of helping to combat climate change or our ecological problems is going to be a really tough sell for a lot of leaders. And if you too want to leave a
0: voicemail, feel free. We love getting voicemails. They really make our day and it makes us smile to hear our listeners sending in their comments and suggestions as well as their thoughts about the work that we do here on Next Environmentalist.
1: We've been getting a lot of emails, Facebook comments and Twitter replies and comments on our episode pages on extraenvironmentalist.com far more than we can reply to at the moment because Seth and I are in the process of doing some really exciting video projects and so hopefully as some of those smooth out and take up less time we'll have a chance to respond to those in the near future.
0: Absolutely, look forward to exciting news from the extra environmentalists ways to make the projects that we here find so exciting, spreading them all over the world so uh, look forward to hearing more about that. So in the meantime, fight those winter colds, get outside To get some camping in and find yourself into the middle of a snow cave and light a candle.
3: as a society if we can switch over time from expectations of more economic growth from the from doing everything we can to make growth happen even if it's imperiling the lives of future generations if we can move from that model toward valuing quality of life then we can make this transition go much much easier and faster uh, and there are even if we are seeing peak oil. There are a lot of things that aren't at peak. Things like sense of satisfaction from honest work well done, intergenerational solidarity and cooperation, health of the environment, happiness and artistry. These are the things that make life worth living. And if rather than focusing just on GDP we begin to think more about quality of life and target quality of life indicators, things like genuine progress indicator or gross national happiness, which has been pioneered by the, the little kingdom of Bhutan, as consumption inevitably dwindles because of the factors we've been talking about, it won't necessarily mean misery for, for people. And if my concern is if we, if we don't do these things, if we don't focus on quality of life, then as economies begin to contract because of of energy constraints and because of increasing costs from the impacts of climate change, the result is going to be uh, not just impoverishment, but also widespread social unrest, such as we're seeing in poor countries around the world where food prices are already higher than people can afford. This message needs to get out to a much Wider audience. And we need to lead by example, within our communities and support efforts like transition initiatives, and show that this is this is a transition that can be successful, it can be peaceful, and it can lead to actually some desirable outcomes.
1: Next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with Michael Schumann and Carol Hewitt about local investing and in slow money.
6: When I first developed these ideas, I shared it with my family around Thanksgiving, which wasn't a very smart thing to do because several of my family members were, were furious at me for spoiling, spoiling the, the great family feelings of Thanksgiving by, by shattering this fairy tale.
3: The phrase slow money is an idea if you will. It's uh, coined by a man named Woody Tash. And he wrote a book called Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money that came out in 2008.
1: We now interrupt your regularly scheduled program for this powerful and important infomercial from your U.S. Federal Reserve. I am Alex Trebekistan, the
0: host of many of your favorite TVs and game shows. Your government has asked me to be the spokesman about how the world is recovering since 2008 and how the summer of 2014 is the recovery summer we've all been waiting for.
1: I was a clerk here at this electronics outlet named Radio Shack. And when the economy tanked, I, I lost my job. But now, thanks to the Federal Reserve's cheap money policies, the economy's back and better than ever. Radio Shack is being rebranded as Radio Shackles. Now I'm chained to the desk, so I save on rent because I have to stay here 24 hours a day. Thank you, Federal Reserve.
0: Clearly, things are getting better. But wait, there's more.
3: A strong recovery will ultimately enable the Fed to reduce its monetary accommodation. I believe that supporting the recovery today is the surest path to returning to a more normal approach to monetary policy. We have seen meaningful progress in the labor market. The unemployment rate is not a sufficient statistic to measure the health of the labor market. Yeah, this,
0: this recovery in 2014 is going to be so great. I launched a hedge fund that bets on which destitute Fukushima cleanup worker is going to die first. So far, I've made a lot of money and I can't wait to make more. Young and old alike are feeling the benefits of the 2014 Summer of Recovery. So, as a Hollywood producer, I can clearly see that the economy is recovering because there's so many movies that are just doing so incredibly well. The film, 12 Years a Slave, did so well and made so much money that I'm able to use all this cheap money to finance my soon-to-be award-winning sequel, 120 Years, An Energy Slave. It's about how everybody uses an exorbitant amount of energy and is chained to their devices. It's going to be great. The entertainment world is making a comeback while the rest of the world does well too. Your national government is creating a website and a Kickstarter program to make sure that you too can tell your story about how the recovery is affecting you. Log on to our website at recoverysummer.gov to tell your story about how your family is making ends meet. Some great stories like these. My dumpster diving has really picked up this summer. I can't wait to go behind my favorite restaurants. The dumpsters I'm I'm used to jumping into have just been filling up with filet mignon, so clearly things have just been going a lot better. The food I'm eating is really great, although slightly expired and slightly filled with maggots. Well, maggots are nice extra protein. And other videos like this. Uh, yeah, so uh,
4: I made that plane disappear in order to stimulate airplane manufacturing jobs and uh, when am I getting the money that was promised? I just wanted to check in. I thought it was the best way to get in touch, thanks.
0: The recovery summer of 2014 brought to you by Toast. It's the new filet mignon.
1: I love toast! I love finding toast and
0: dumpsters. All this and more brought to you in this recovery of summer by your Federal Reserve.